0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We have been journeying through the Gospel of Luke together, and today we come to Luke chapter 14. And as we do so, it really introduces this reality of a party that we all get to look forward to for those of us who know and love Jesus. So let's back up from that for a minute and think for a bit. What is the best party you've ever been to? Something come to mind? For me, I'd have to say it was really the last party I've been to with my family. And let me explain myself. When I married Jamie, I married up in a lot of ways, and one of the ways that that happened was in her family, everything is a celebration. I mean, it it is a big deal. So anytime we have a birthday party or any kind of celebration, we have a graduation party coming um, this next week for um, our youngest daughter, anytime we have an occasion like that, it's a big deal. There's a lot that goes into preparing for it. It's thematized. There's, there's always specific decor, and um, it's just very focused on honoring and blessing that person. I mean, my, my wife's family knows how to party, and I've drank the Kool Aid, and now I guess I'd say we know how to party. I mean, we, we just enjoy those occasions richly together and look forward look forward to them. And I got an introduction to this many years ago when I began dating Jamie in high school. Our families had always been uh, connected. Uh, My mom used to work for Jamie's dad, who was an optometrist. That was really the first first way our families began to get to know one another. But all that being said, Jamie's dad's birthday was just a day after mine in March. And so we always kind of celebrated our birthdays together. And I remember this one year, well, my 18th birthday year, we, I thought, well, you know, we're going we're gonna, to you know, do something a little sneaky. And we were going to sneak over to, to Jamie's family's house because they were supposed to be out of town or at least gone that night. And we were going to sneak in there and key in and, and uh, decorate for her dad because it was his birthday the next day. So my family was complicit in what, what's about to happen, but I didn't know. But uh, there was a surprise party that they had planned for me. So I thought we were going over to an empty house, and it was actually full of people. So we key in, and Jamie's dad had killed the circuit breaker to the interior entry there. So I went to turn on a light, and I couldn't turn it on. And my mom said, being so helpful, you know, why don't you go a little further into the house and try another light? And so I did. I turned on a light, and there's a surprise! And here's like 30 of my closest friends and family, you know, at this birthday party. I didn't even know I knew 30 people. And they're all there, are all there. And it was great. I mean, everybody I would have wanted to be there was there. There was good food. It was a celebration. There's a picture of Jamie serving me the cake. Um, She hasn't aged at all, but I, I have, obviously. She looks about the same. You look gorgeous, babe. But me, well, there's work to be done. But that being said, it was just a great, great occasion. It was so much fun. And as we dive into God's word today, Jesus is going to paint this picture of a party. And it's an unbelievable party. And as we read this passage, as I read it to you, I want to encourage you to watch for some things. What kind of party is this going to be? Who's going to be there? What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? And if you have a a Bible... um, open that. If you need to get to your phone or tablet, turn that on. We're going to start in Luke chapter 14, and we're actually rolling these two sections together because they really are meant to go together. When you look at them in your Bible, they're separated, but they really are a unity of thought, so we're going to look at both of them together. So here we go. Jesus is at the house of a prominent Pharisee, a prominent religious leader. They're having a banquet, really a party of sorts, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God to them and describing it to them, and that's the context for what we're about to read. So when one of, the ta- one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on the way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what, ha- what you ordered has been done, but there's still more room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet." Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if there's enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long ways off and will ask for terms of peace in the same way. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So let's begin to walk our way through what we just looked at here. Jesus is at this banquet, and from what this man says, we can draw at least two assumptions. Number one, he has a specific party in mind. And number two, he thinks he's going to be invited and he's going to go. And Jesus begins to speak to that. And this party that this man had in mind was a picture that is painted in Isaiah chapter 25. So we'll reach back into the Old Testament now and go about 700 years before the time of Jesus when Isaiah was written. So understand for hundreds of years, God's people, the Jews, had heard this descriptor of a party that was coming. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This was and is the day of the Lord that God's people were and are anticipating when Jesus will come back a second and final time and there will be judgment on all the enemies of God after they've been given multiple, multiple opportunities to repent and to turn to him. But there will also be salvation where God's people will be restored to what God always intended for them to be. It's an incredible day and it is an incredible party. And it is something that God's people look forward to for thousands and thousands of years. And this is the party that this man had in mind. And it's the party now that Jesus is speaking to. And so he paints this picture of this story of the master who is throwing the party. And he sends out these invitations. And look how people respond they make excuses. Now, understand in the first century, wealth was measured by livestock and land. That's where your wealth was, okay? With that in mind, would you then buy a field without ever having seen it before you bought it? And the answer is no. This is a profoundly lame excuse. No one would go and buy a field without looking at it. It's, it's ridiculous. Okay, with that in mind then, would you go and buy five yoke of oxen? And for those of you who are good at math, that's 10 oxen, right? A yoke is two. So would you buy 10 oxen having never tried them out and seen what they were capable of? And the answer, no. No one in their right mind would ever do that in the first century. Another lame excuse. Okay, well here comes the whopper. I just got married. Married people don't party seriously married people don't go to banquets and if we can get a little bit more specific once again in that culture we know this from joseph and mary by a specific example when they got married there was like a year-long engagement technically they were married but they weren't living together but then there was a ceremony at the end of that year so what you're telling me is that from the time that the master sent out the invitation to this party this dude actually got married in that amount it's ridiculous there is no way that would have happened Lame excuse. The common denominator between all three excuses lame. Ridiculous. Unbelievable. And so the master gets angry. And so would you. Put yourself in the place of the master. You have a Christmas celebration, you have Thanksgiving, you have some kind of banquet or party where you invite your family, where you invite everybody to come, and at the last minute, everybody makes a lame excuse and doesn't come. Would you be happy about that? All the preparation you put in, all the money you'd spent on the food, all the things that you had done to get ready for that, how well would that go over? Not real well, but that's not why the master was angry in this story. There's a deeper issue here. We have to understand, in the first century, community was everything. And by saying no to the party, what everybody was really saying was no to relationship. They were saying, I'm not just inconveniencing you, I am shaming you. And once again, in an honor-shame culture, which many of us really don't have much frame of reference for, what kept you up at night was the fear that you would somehow bring shame on yourself, on your family, or on your community. And that's exactly what every person who is declining this invitation is doing. They aren't just saying no to an event, they're saying no to in a relationship. This is a huge embarrassment. It is a loss of face. It is profoundly shaming and is profoundly insulting to the master. He's not just angry because he's inconvenienced. He's angry because they're saying no to relationship with him. What they're doing is unthinkable in that culture. There may have even been gasps in the crowd as Jesus was telling this story to those who were gathered at that banquet that he was a part of. It just was unthinkable that someone would do this. So how does the master respond? He goes out into the community and he invites the very people Who would never be invited to a banquet like this. And the reason why is because they don't have anything to offer. Because once again, in that culture, it was understood that if someone threw a banquet for you, you returned the favor. Somehow they were to pay you back. But these are folks who don't have resources to pay someone back. They are folks who would have been excluded from a banquet like this, and yet they're the ones who get invited. And there's not enough. We see the heart of the master in this. He wants this to be a full party. So he sends the invitations far and wide. And now it says he goes not just to the the, the poor within the city. He goes to the poor who are out in the country. The really desperate poor who even have less than the poor who just made the guest list that we just read together. And this is so fascinating to me. It says go into the country lanes and compel them to come in. What does that mean? And we don't really know for sure, but, but could it be they had to be compelled to come because they wouldn't believe they were invited? They wouldn't believe they were worthy, that they were wanted, that they were welcome. Does this ever happen with the invitation of God's people to the community around us? Do people ever think they're not welcome in church? Or really, to say it another way, they're not welcome to come to God? A couple weeks ago, a homeless woman came to our church, and this is a part of the ministry of grace that that you don't see, and, and that's perfectly understandable. But on a day-in, day-out basis, we have a number of folks from our community who are looking for help. They're looking for resources. They find themselves in a tough spot. We have a a profoundly capable and gifted um, community care team who have to think through each of those um, opportunities, and, and to try to think through how do we help in the best way with limited resources, and they do such a wonderful job, and they are literally busy every day listening to messages and connecting to people and what have you. Well, we do get homeless folks who come in, and um, one of us a, a here at Grace on the pastoral staff, we're always on call. One of us is always delineated to be on call and to be available, and I was the person for that day, and this, this homeless lady came in, and I could tell from the moment we began to talk, she didn't feel like she was worthy to even come in the building because she was so ashamed. And she, she came in, and we began to talk together, and I began to hear some of her story. And unfortunately, what she was asking for help for would have been enabling her, and we weren't going to do that. But we did offer to help in some other ways. But I got the opportunity to hear her story. And there was so much shame. And you could tell she felt so unworthy. And I remember thinking, as we were dialoguing and interacting together, I remember thinking to this passage and thinking, you are exactly who God wants to invite to his party. You are exactly who gets invited into the kingdom. And there's a bigger message here. And it's a message that Jesus has been proclaiming as he's been explaining the kingdom throughout the gospel of Luke. And it's this. The specific context for this was that the Jewish people, the nation, thought they were the only ones who could be and would be the people of God. They were the only ones who the kingdom was for. And Jesus very deliberately is saying, no, my kingdom, the invitation to my party goes out to all people, including non-Jewish ones, including Gentiles, including people like us. Who's, who's invited to this party? Everybody is. As Ron Bergen, our, our missionary who was here a number of weeks ago, helped us see once again, This invitation goes out to all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And what an amazing party it will be. But there's a very clear message in this first story, and it's this. Just because you've heard the invitation doesn't mean you've accepted it. This is a season of a lot of parties going on. I referenced our graduation party we'll do for our daughter. It's the season of grad parties. There's a lot of weddings that happen too, and this is really rich and fun as a as a staff team. All three of our our ministry staff women have daughters who are getting married. One of them is is Caitlin's Caitlin Patrick's wedding is coming this this Saturday, but. We were in staff meeting together, and one of our ladies began to share about just wedding preparations, and the other two ladies started to nod heads. You know, it's just, it's just such a rich time for us as a, as a team. But imagine one of those weddings where you get invited, and what you're supposed to do, right, which a lot of people unfortunately don't do, but you're supposed to RSVP, right? You're supposed to say, I'm coming, right? And then you actually come. Very similar system in this culture and what this story is about. These people had all gotten the invitation and they had actually said they were going to come and they don't come. And that's the bottom line. You've been invited, but are you actually going to come? And what that means is you make a defining moment decision to receive this invitation by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And be very careful that you don't do what the people in this first story were doing. Do you realize Jesus isn't excluding any of them? They are excluding themselves. And there's a common denominator that once again runs through all three of those stories. And this one is is chilling to me, to be quite honest with you. It's sobering to me. All three of those people were too busy, too self-focused, too preoccupied in order to come to the party. Or to put it in our culture's vernacular, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing good. I'm a good person, I'm good. I don't need to come to a party. I don't need forgiveness, I don't need grace, I don't need a fresh start. I'm fine. That's what these three people were saying as well. So have you? Have you accepted the invitation to this party? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I hope you have but I hope you know what that means. In fact, let's take that for a test drive with the second story that connects directly to this one. So Jesus then, at another time, shortly after this first story takes place, he turns to the crowd, and so he's speaking to everybody. And he says some amazing things. He talks about hating your mother and father and wife and children and brothers and and sisters even your own life that's a pretty high bar there and, and and what is he really saying and what does it mean for us well is he throwing out the ten commandments where it says to honor your father and mother i mean it just it's kind of weird at first blush but that's that's obviously not what he's saying And just like we do in English, in our language, you can say things and they can have different application and different contexts and there's words that are used in different ways. This isn't talking about the emotion of hate. This is actually a comparative statement. What he's saying here is that I need to be the first priority in your life over all other relationships in your life. And understand, he's saying this to the whole crowd, which means there isn't this dichotomy of the, the spiritual people and then the super spiritual people. You know, the spiritual people are those who, you know, they're moral, good people. They, they are kind of into this Jesus thing. Sometimes they come to church. They might read their Bible once a year. They come at Easter and Christmas. They're the kind of the, the, the spiritual people. And then you have the super spiritual people. And they're the people who do volunteer for the production team. And they're the people who do give money to the mission and vision. And they're the people who are a part of the life of the church and boy, when the doors are open, they're here. Do you understand? Jesus makes no such dichotomy. You are either in the kingdom of God or you're out. You're either in or you're out. There isn't a super spiritual, spiritual side of this. You're either all in or you're not. And this gets real practical, real tangible, real quick because there are a number of cultures in the world where if you choose to follow Jesus, you lose your family. Literally so. You that day are out on the streets, disowned by your family. No longer considered to be a part of the family. In fact, there are some cultures in our world where if you choose to follow Jesus, you quite literally will lose your life because it will be your family that takes it. It's called honor killing. And there are some cultures in our world today where it is considered an honor to the family that if you choose to follow Jesus, then someone in the family will kill you and take your life and that's considered to be an honorable thing now we don't live in a culture like that but what is this really saying here well it's it's saying this there there is a cost to following jesus please understand this it has cost jesus everything to throw this party for us. He has sacrificed his life in order to rescue us from brokenness and to bring us into his kingdom and to make us into the people that we've always been created to be. It's cost him everything, but the reality is it will cost you something to follow him. This is not a question of if, it is a question of of when. That's the whole point of the parable of the tower and the king is to count the cost many of you know my story but many many years ago as a high school student when i sat under that pine tree at that camp and i was weighing out what it meant to follow jesus i intuitively knew there was going to be a cost to that because in my family my family made it really clear they didn't want us following jesus and they certainly didn't want us to grow up someday and be a pastor or a missionary good gravy don't let that happen and that was, that, that was what I was doing business with. And I knew that I had to count the cost. I knew that was a defining moment decision. Now, in fairness to my family, they, they, they are profoundly supportive and respect that I, that I love Jesus. And they love that I'm a pastor. For the record, I love being your pastor. And I became a missionary when I received Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're a missionary. You've got an incredible story to tell, and he'll give you many opportunities to tell it. So been there, done that. But I had to count the cost, and the same is true for you. In fact, Jesus actually raises the stakes on this and says, you better be willing to give up everything if you're going to follow me. You done business with that? I'm not sure I fully have. Man, this is talking about going all in. And this reminds me of what a little kid does. And maybe this didn't happen in your family. It sometimes happened in ours when, when, with our little kids. And I know I did this when I was a little kid. But you go up to a little kid and they have something that you need or you need to take away from them or what have you. And they want it. What do they do when you reach for it? No. You can't have that. So what is that thing or those things in your life where the Lord has put his finger on that and said, I want that. And you go, uh-uh. Because that's what this is talking about. If you're going to follow Jesus, you don't get to have any of those. And as hard as those things are to give up, what you're really doing, what I'm really doing when we do this, is we're turning to those things as our functional saviors. Really, to use Jesus' language here, we're loving those things more than we love him. And people who follow Jesus, who live life on his terms, live distinctively. That's what salt is about. Salt is distinctive, it adds flavor. I was barbecuing just the other night, added some salt to some stuff. Oh, it was so good! Because that's what salt does, it gives flavor. And once again, in the first century, salt was um, a mixed compound in terms of it was always combined with other stuff. They didn't have pure salt like we did. And so over time, it would degrade, and it would just basically become worthless. And that's, that's the point here, is we're, we're called to live distinctly as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And if you want to look at how to do that, continue to read just the book of Luke. I mean, the whole Bible, but just with what we're looking at here. How many times is what he's calling us to do profoundly distinctive from the rest of our culture? By way of example, who is it in the passage that precedes ours, who invites people over to their home and offers hospitality to them who can never repay them, who people culture would say, "Ah, well, they're not worth your time. We're called to live differently than that. And, And on it goes. So can we cut to the chase here and get to the bottom line? Is it worth it? I mean, this party sounds pretty cool, but really? Is it worth it for that? Do you realize, as you wrestle with that question, how Jesus helps you answer that with what he says over and over again? what he tells me, what he tells you, when we understandably wrestle with those defining moments in our life where we go, I'm not sure it's worth it to follow you, Jesus, on your terms. He reminds us of realities like, like this. We're going to get a reward. And here it is. Everything that we lose, everything that we sacrifice, everything that we give up will either be replaced or we'll be given something better. Look what some of the things he says are about. Matthew 19:29. For those of us who have had to give up family or who have had to give up wealth and stuff and money, everyone who has left houses, that's wealth, or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children, that's relationships, or fields, that's wealth again, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That sounds like a pretty amazing exchange. Or what about our health? What does he promise us? In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's talking about just some of what we can look forward to. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If you know and love and follow Jesus, someday you will have a body that is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Amen. Bring it, right? bring it on. How about approval and significance? It's so important for us to to hear and receive approval, some of us more than others, but it's a basic need we all have. All of us have the need to feel significant, that what we're doing matters. And what does Jesus say? He tells this story in Luke 19, and we'll get there in a number of weeks where he, he tells this parable of basically the point is to invest your life, invest your resources, invest your money in ways that matter, that advance the kingdom of God. And so in this example, the first one came and said to the master, Sir, your mina, the money that he would given him, has earned ten more. Look what the master says. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities." What will it be like to have the God of the universe look you in the eye and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Can you imagine how amazing that will be? And we rarely talk about this, but Jesus on a number of occasions talks about the reward that will be given to us. And for those of us who sacrifice in order to advance the kingdom, for those of us who give and are serving and make, you know, those, those tough decisions where we have to give something up that we really want in order to follow Jesus. He talks about giving us additional responsibility when we get to heaven. So you walk away from a job because it's a, it's a job you've always wanted, but you know that it's just not where God wants you to be. What does he say? I'm going to replace that with something better. I mean these are amazing amazing promises I've given you just a handful but we need to remember and anticipate the reward that God promises us. It really comes down to how wise of an investor are you? How wise of an investor am I? Are you willing to do what's the most benefit to you? Are are you capable with basic math? Because what's being promised here? The kingdom of God is like you going home today or me going home today and there's a letter or a notice from the city or from the county or from the government saying, we just found the largest oil deposit in the state of Oregon and it's underneath your house. Or it's underneath your apartment. Or it's in some land that you own. But here's the deal. It will cost you everything For us to extract it, refine it, and sell it. But you will make a bajillion dollars. But it's going to cost you everything right now. Would you make that investment? Seriously? Yeah, we would. Wouldn't you give up everything in order to get something even better? Even more wonderful? Tenfold? A hundredfold? A thousandfold of of what you already have? That is what the kingdom of God is like. This party that we are going to celebrate together and enjoy together is going to be so worth it. It's going to be worth it beyond your wildest dreams. Do you realize there are some scholars who believe that this party that's being talked about is going to last for over a thousand years? No one knows how to party like God does. Will you be there? Will you get to be a part of it? Because every single one of you is invited. All of you, including me. And communion reminds us of these realities. You know, every Sunday that we gather together is a call to community and a reminder of the need for community. And this walk with Jesus is not something that we do alone. We do it together in relationship and community. Because if we can be honest with one another... There are times, there are days, there are seasons when it doesn't feel worth it to follow Jesus. Not because of the cost that's involved. And the reality of this broken world is that it's not a question of if you will pay a cost to follow Jesus, it's really a question of when. And you don't have to do that alone. One of the greatest lies of the evil one is that you are alone. No one else feels like that. No one else can relate to that. Man, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It is not true. We have prayer teams off to the sides here. Would you please take advantage of the opportunity for us to be able to pray with you and to enter in with you with what's going on in your life? And if you if you accepted that invitation for the first time this morning, received Jesus into your life, would you please tell someone, tell me, tell our prayer team, tell the person who brought you. We just want to celebrate with you because that is pause and time for celebration. But once again, I want us to have... Just another picture of what God promises us. We we read this early on in the sermon, but I want to read to you once again from Isaiah 25 because it's realities like this that have sustained the people of God for thousands and thousands of years. And I want us to leave with the same reality in mind. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth because the Lord has spoken. And if God says it, you can believe it. So I want to pray that over you now. Lord, as we go from here... Would we remember these words? Would we remember your words? And would your spirit now empower us to live the very life that you call us to? And thank you that we have real, tangible hope. There is gonna be an incredible party someday, and we're gonna get to be a part of it. And it is worth it to follow you until that day. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for each person here. Continue your work in us. And God's people said, amen. So we'll see you next Sunday.